You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John. Find ourselves in John chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11 should be uh, familiar to you, possibly. It's the the story of the death of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus' famous I am statement where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to walk through this chapter. We're going to deal with it uh, in segments. We're going to talk about uh, this week and next week. We're going to talk about the the background to the miracle. We're going to talk about Jesus's interaction then to with Mary and then with Martha. We're going to talk about the death of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus. So we're going to we're going to walk through this text, and I think it's really important that we grasp some things that are going on here as we go. It's so important to us. So let's just. Let's just look at the first uh, six verses this morning. If you would, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, him who you love is ill. But Jesus, but when Jesus heard, yet he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, and we just take this this short portion, this this introduction to this uh, amazing chapter, this amazing miracle. And as we take this short portion, we're left with a question. And the question is why? Why would he do that? Why would he stay? Lord, I pray as we deal with that question this morning, I pray that you would guide us to truth, that the name of Jesus would be glorified, and that we would, in the end, resolve to fix our eyes on Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me just introduce you to this text this way. I think one thing that has really revolutionized a lot of uh, different industries is drones. Everything from farming to modern warfare. I remember a few years ago, it was really wet. There was a lot of water around. There was water all over the place, but it wasn't until I saw some, some drone footage. I think it was Mike that was flying a drone, showing it to me. It might have been Dave Gross, both of them probably that year. 
In any case, it was so amazing to see the land from an aerial perspective. I knew that there was sitting water all over the place, but seeing things from the ground level and then seeing an aerial view from a drone were like night and day. When you're you're flying in an airplane into a, a large city and you get closer and closer to the ground, you can start seeing the roads. And then you notice the the busy roads, right? The the interstates, the the ones that have a lot of traffic. You can see cars and you can see uh, for miles down the road. And when the traffic is stopped, you can look up the road and you can see why. This is why in large cities there's helicopters and drones to report to people on the ground what the traffic is like because people on the ground have a short-sighted view. They don't see the entire picture, so they need a view from above to put the ground into perspective. Say, there is an accident that's causing traffic to come to a standstill. The people stuck in traffic only know that there must be something up ahead that is causing the the flow in traffic problem. But they don't know what's causing it, and they don't know how long it's going to take to get through it. They don't know how it's going to affect them. So they they turn on the radio and they hear the report from somebody that has a a bird's eye view. That will tell them both the reason for the traffic problem and give them an estimate on how long they're going to be stuck there until traffic moves again. The the point that I'm trying to, to bring out here at the onset is that sometimes, most of the time, All of the time, we don't have the big picture, do we? We're kind of sitting in standstill on the interstate, and we don't know what the problem is, how long it's going to take to get moving again. All we see is the immediate that we're stuck in traffic. We're always in a position where we're seeing things from the ground level. God, on the other hand, He knows the future. He has the aerial view. He's in control of all things. He's all wise. He orchestrates all of these things. Nothing that happens happens apart from his divine will. He gets it. He sees the purpose. We don't. He understands the reasons for everything that he allows. And he allows everything. And this is what we start to see in our text this morning. Just listen to the verses once again. I I think you will see what I'm talking about. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brothers Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, who whom you love is ill, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What I think is obvious, just from the first four verses there, at the onset, is that Jesus has a different perspective on this emergency than Lazarus' sisters did. These sent word to him because they believed that their brother might die. And these were thinking that Jesus would want to be there. 
Or perhaps he might come there and heal Jesus. They didn't ask him to do that. Maybe that's speculation. We do know that they wanted him to come. In the situation of life and death, we look for answers. We look for hope. And in this case, these ladies were looking to Jesus. As one who cared for Lazarus. They thought he would want to be there. And when Jesus gets the message, he gives us a little insight. And that is that this sickness of Lazarus is not without purpose. But the purpose here is that the Son of God might be glorified through it. In other words, Mary and Martha were on the ground level at the trial. They couldn't see the big picture. And that suffering here was not without purpose. And in fact... Jesus could see purpose and it would be realized in time, but from their perspective, they couldn't see any of it. If you remember at the end of chapter 10, there were those that wanted to stone Jesus. He left, right? He, he fled to the wilderness. He went to the place where John had, been baptized, John had baptized people and there many followed him and believed. It was a very hopeful moment. So Jesus is there, he's ministering in that area, and he gets the news of of an emergency of sorts. And that is that in a small family from a small town outside of Jerusalem, there was one man who was sick. This was a a small family that was close to the heart of Jesus. Mary, we know, loved to sit at the Lord's feet and learn from him. She would take in everything that he had to say. I mean, we learn a lot from Mary, right? You need to sit under the teaching of Jesus. Martha, she was a little bit different. I mean, she sure loved to listen to Jesus teach, but she did it as she was busy. She was devout, we know that. But she was always busy serving. I call it ants in the pants disease. She was always running around and doing things and serving. Which is a gift, by the way. Lazarus, we gather, we're guessing he must have been younger, young enough in fact that he didn't have much responsibility in the family. We really don't know much about him, but we do know that this small family Lazarus included, was very dear to the Lord Jesus and his relationship with them was very close and very special. We know this from the other gospels that Jesus liked to be with them in their home. He would go there and he would relax, right? He reclined at their table. The hospitality in this home was famous and Jesus loved to go there. These were close friends of Jesus. And the normal function of this family ceased when Lazarus became ill and that illness was severe. And when these sisters recognized that he might die from this illness, it changed everything. They started thinking about others. They started thinking about, wait a minute, who would want to see him in these last moments? These women who were used to a normal routine were now at their wits end 
And this is why they send a message to Jesus. Verse 3 is interesting. Lazarus is called the one that Jesus loves. Lord, the one who you love is sick. Now we know that in the Greek in which this was written, there are different words that are translated by our one word love. We read love in English. In the Greek, it can be a different word. In this case, it was the word phileo. It it means to be fond of, to have an affection for. It denotes a a personal attachment. It has been designated the brotherly love kind of love in the New Testament. It's the love that two close friends have for one another, David and Jonathan. Now, what was written here isn't an invitation for Jesus to come. Notice that. It isn't even a a request. And the reason for that is very clear. Lazarus was sick, and of course Jesus would come. He didn't need an invitation. his His presence didn't need to be requested. Because that is what good friends do. And Jesus was one that always showed compassion. He always showed compassion on others. He showed compassion on people that he didn't know. And this case would be no different. And in the minds of these women, Jesus had great love for Lazarus. He knew him. He spent considerable time with him. This wasn't a random person. This was Lazarus. So Jesus would come. When he got the news that Lazarus was sick, he would be there. Now it's true that in verse 4, here we see a a glimpse of what is going to happen. We know that uh, when we know the story, we also know something about Jesus. We know that Jesus understood that Lazarus was going to die and that this wasn't going to be the end, that he would raise him to life, that this would be for the glory of God. And Jesus would be glorified through it. We know this. Of course, now there are some that will say that in verse 4, when Jesus says that this sickness will not lead to death, these will say that Jesus was just passing off the sister's message. Eh, He's not that sick, they might say. In verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It almost sounds like Jesus thought that this was no big deal. That the illness that Lazarus had wasn't going to be an illness that he would die from. So he figured that he would stay there a bit longer. And then he would go see Lazarus. You know, after he was well. This interpretation might make a little sense if one didn't read the context. For instance, if we go down to verse 11, Jesus tells the disciples before he gets there, right, that Lazarus had died. And he makes it clear in verse 13, Lazarus is Dead and his death was for a purpose in verse 15, so that these might believe. Get that? 
So our understanding initially in verse four is correct. Jesus knows knows what he's doing all along. He didn't mess up. He He didn't read the story wrong. He knew what was going to happen. And he knew what he was doing all along. He knew that this would turn into a a marvelous sign in which he would be glorified. That people would see. And that the end result there, that they would believe and God would be glorified. Now what I want you to think about here for the next few moments is really those two verses. Verses 5 and 6. Just listen to them again. I know I'm saying them a lot, but I want you to to hear it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I love what John does here. The word love here is a different word than what we read before in verse three. We don't catch that in English. The word is agapeo, which is the highest love. It's the love that, of God. It's the love for which Christ loves his own. Christ, the good shepherd, loves his sheep this way. So after one reads verse 5 and recognizes the love for which Jesus loves these, right? Jesus loved them, the, the highest kind of love there is. You would think, right, the human mind is going to think that Jesus is going to go find a horse or something and get there as soon as he possibly can. Right? This is, isn't this what love does? The, the truest kind of love? Real love? But we learn that it is precisely because Jesus loved them this way that he waited two more days before he left. Now, to take a, a shot at a modern worship song, perhaps this love was quite reckless from our perspective on the ground level. How in the world does Jesus show his love, the truest love of God for his children, by staying two days and letting him die? Now, if you sent word to Jesus that one was, he really cared about that was sick and he didn't show up for a considerable amount of time, what would you be tempted to think? Looking at things from the other perspective. Perhaps that Jesus didn't care. He got the message. Why isn't he here? I thought he loved us. I thought he cared for us. You know, if we just had verse 6, but we didn't have verse 3 or verse 5 or verse 11 or verse 13 or all of the rest of Scripture that speaks to this issue. We might think that, but we know from the text that Jesus didn't go right away because of his perfect love for them. So what can we learn from this? Let me just give you a few things here. There's, there's more, but I'm just going to give you a few. First, From the ground level, we do not always see the love that God has for us. 
from the ground level, from that perspective, in that moment, with our limited knowledge on the ground, we don't always see the great love that God has for us. John wants us to know here in verse 5, not only were these friends of Jesus, not only did Jesus care for them and love them like a brother, but John wants us to know that his love for them was the highest kind of love that there possibly is. His love for them was perfect. And John makes sure that the reader gets this because he doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding The reason that Jesus is doing what he's doing was out of love. And in the midst of it, Mary and Martha wouldn't be able to understand it. And the disciples too wouldn't understand it. We see that as you read further on in the text. This is why Jesus said in verse 13 that he was glad that it was happening this way because he wanted them to believe. So what I'm saying here is that on the ground level, where we are, we might not always feel the love of God. We might not always experience warm and fuzzies. There are churches, so-called, not good ones, but large, famous ones that have made their bones off selling experience. When you go there, they, they want you to feel loved by God. So they drop litter, glitter out of the vents in crucial moments in, in the service. And they tell you it's angel dust because God is present there and it's a sign of his great love for you. His love is translated in experiences. Healings and speaking in tongues and other so-called manifestations of the spirit. The problem is that isn't real world. Do you remember a few years ago, I I suppose it was now, In California, a little girl died at a certain church in California and spent, in that church, spent days praying for her to be resurrected. It was quite a thing. There was pray for all of things all over social media. 24-hour-a-day worship and prayer meetings going on for the purpose of getting God to, to raise her from the dead. And I wonder, during all of that from the ground level, Did that little girl's parents feel loved by God as their prayers and the prayers of thousands of people seem to go unanswered? I can't imagine losing a child so young. I think she was two. And walking through all of that, but then on top of that, having your church say, hey, wait a minute, you need to believe enough. You need to have enough faith. And if you believe enough, and if everybody around you believes enough, then she'll be raised from the dead. Because that's God's will. I've called that a church for lack of a better word, but it isn't. It's a heretical group that leads people astray. From the ground level, it is difficult sometimes to experience the love of God. And there are times on the ground level when it seems like he isn't there. Read the Psalms. Many of you have felt that. I know you have. It doesn't mean that we cannot know his love for us. 
This is one reason why this story is in the Bible. In the entire story, we are able to see the love of God for these. We see a little bit of the aerial view, even though they didn't know it or experience it for a time. They had to walk through some really, really difficult moments to get to the end. We catch a little bit of an aerial view here. But we need to remember that there was a considerable amount of time where Jesus was absent. But that doesn't mean that his love for these was absent. In fact, he used his absence to show his great love for his own. We must realize that we are on the ground level. We don't always see things as God does. We realize that he is perfectly wise, that his love for us is always perfect. I remember listening to a person one time that had suffered greatly. The suffering that she experienced was unimaginable. And she said, though, in the midst of that message, she said, I would not change it. She said that she had experienced the love of God in her life, walking through all of that in a way that she could not have any other way. Was there times in her life where she struggled? Was there times in her life where she still struggles? Yes and yes. In fact, over the years, this person has undergone so much. It seems to just continue to to pile up on her. And I'm sure from the ground level, she can't grasp it. But she knows Jesus loves her, even though she doesn't get it in the moment. She's learned to understand that there is a bigger perspective. The Bible is so clear on this subject and from the ground level, we have every reason to believe it. To know that God loves us because he says that he does. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, he says that nothing can separate us from the love that he has for us. We just walked through this in John chapter 10. Nothing will take you out of his hand. Nothing can snatch you out. Why? Because he, he loves you the way that he does. Over and over in scripture, there's great instances where God seems absent only to use this to show that all along, all through it, he loves his own in a way that we could not even imagine. We see this in the testimony of Jerry Ox Erickson Tata, who I mentioned a moment ago. We know this. On the ground level, it is difficult, but it doesn't change the fact that we know And we can be confident that he loves us. And his love for us is perfect. Second, Jesus' purpose is not always to ease or limit the suffering of his saints. But on the ground level, when we walk through that, it seems like maybe he doesn't care. So from the the ground level, we must remind ourselves that we are loved by God, even though we cannot understand what is happening in the moment. But there's something else that we must understand, and that is that Jesus' purpose in our lives isn't always to ease or limit suffering. That is a, a hard truth. The the fact is, and, and there are numerous examples of this, but God allows his children to suffer and the suffering of his children does not mean that he doesn't care. In the third century, you can't imagine living in the third century. But in the third century, the, the persecution of the church was wild. And these understood that suffering 
was something that Christians were called to do. Origen knew the dangers of martyrdom. His dad died as a martyr in 202. Origen then escaped death once only because his mom hid his clothes so he couldn't go out and join those who would be killed for their faith. Eventually, Origen went to prison for being a Christian. There he was tortured horrendously under the persecution of Emperor Decius in 250. And he died a couple years later. Stories like this are not uncommon in the church. One escapes death, certainly by the providence of God, only to be tortured, worse, later, and then die as a result of torture. I remember once before a service... Between Sunday school and church, I walked in and I saw Dwayne Walter sitting in the back. I might have told you this story before, but I asked him how he was doing. And his eyes welled up with tears and he started to just sob. And he told me that he was in so much pain. And that was a long time before he died. The dude was in a lot of pain for a long time. I also remember praying with him on his deathbed. And after I prayed, he prayed. And I remember him praying, knowing that even in the midst of all of his pain, that he was loved by Jesus and he longed to see his Savior. Suffering does not mean that Jesus doesn't care. It means that we see his love in the midst of it. Third and closely related, the suffering of saints is never without purpose. But on the ground level, it might seem like it. The suffering of God's saints is never without purpose. But on the ground level, it might seem like it. It seems like we hear stories frequently of people that were once Christians but turned their back on their faith because something that happened in their lives. They fell into the trap of thinking that Jesus makes life easier or that if God cared, if he really loved us, then he would protect us from life's hardships. Perhaps trial and hardships are something that these people hadn't thought about before. Perhaps those who shared the gospel with them told them that God had a wonderful plan for their life. And they assumed that that didn't include the loss of a family member or cancer at a young age or whatever trial caused them to abandon the Christian faith. One of the problems is that on the ground level, we do not clearly see God's purpose for suffering. The truth is, And we learn this from scripture is that God has a purpose for everything that he does. God doesn't do anything or allow anything that doesn't have his good purpose in mind. This by definition of what it means to be sovereign. If God is sovereign, then that is true. God always has a purpose for everything that he does and everything that he allows.
That he can take what is meant for evil and use it for his own purpose. We see this in Joseph. Where God explicitly says this. That what was meant for evil was used by God for his glory. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And therefore is in control of our suffering and our hardships as well. Nothing happens that takes God by surprise. Although we might be shocked. On the ground level we might never see God's purpose. That purpose might always be a mystery, but we can be confident that he has a purpose. I love John Piper's quote. It was the most famous tweet of John Piper's in uh, 2022, I believe, where he says that every single moment in our lives, God is doing 10,000 things, and we might see three of them. That's what it's like on the ground level. We know and we trust that God is always at work. God is always at work every moment, doing 10,000 things. And we catch but just a glimpse of that. And this leads us to a fourth and final point, And that is that the only real option on the ground level is to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is all wise. He is all powerful. He has a good purpose in mind. On the ground level, the temptation is to fix our focus on what is right in front of us. To stay, like, think of yourself in a traffic jam. You, you look at what is going on right in front of you. You're fixated on that. You're fixated on the, the trial or whatever it is. For Mary and Martha, their eyes were on the, the trouble. Their brother dying, they couldn't get him off that. He was sick and they couldn't look down the tables of time and see how God is all going to use this for his glory. That would have been impossible. There's no way that you and I either could do that. We can't see what God is doing, right? We can't see, no matter how spiritual we are, we can't see the 9,997 things God is doing every moment in our lives. We cannot know those things. What do we do then? We focus on the trial, or do we set our eyes on Jesus? We set our eyes on Jesus, right? He's the one that knows the problem. He's the one that sees the end. He's the one that has the purpose. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. This is so good. Hebrews chapter 12 exhorts the believer to persevere in the race that is marked out for them. Persevere in the race that is marked out for you. It's interesting because the exhortation is to persevere throughout the race, but we don't know what exactly is marked out for us. How can you persevere in something where you don't know what's ahead? God knows that. God's got that. How do we know that? The author of Hebrews tells us, verse 2. We do it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. There was a statement in our Wednesday evening teaching that I remember. It was, it was so good, and we can apply it here. When we glance at Jesus and gaze at our problems, then our problems seem to loom and become such tyrants that will eventually overwhelm us. What is right is to gaze at Jesus, to look at him intently, to fix our eyes on him. And to glance at our problems, glance at the trials, 
You see, the the trial and tribulations in life should be always seen in their proper perspective. Even if we do not and cannot comprehend their meaning in the moment, the fact is Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, Now listen to what the author of Hebrews says next. He says this, For the joy set before him, Christ, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How does one lose heart? They gaze at their problems. They're fixated on their problems. They're fixated on the trial. How does one persevere? They gaze at Jesus. They they fix their eyes on him. They consider what he has done for them and the suffering for them that they endured at the hand of godless sinners. And they persevere. They get through it. They travel the race that God marked out for them. They don't get to choose it. Why did Jesus delay that day? Why did he stay there? So ultimately, these would fix their eyes on him. That they would trust him in the most difficult of moments in their life. The death of Lazarus wasn't the last one. I guarantee it. Why does God allow difficult things in your life? Ultimately, so you fix your eyes on him. The author, the perfecter of your faith. You persevere. You run the race that is marked out for you by him. You look to Jesus. Every 10 times you look at yourself, for every 10 times you look at your problem and focus on it, you focus on Christ. He's the one that's got it. He has it all under control. And speaking of fixing our eyes on, on Jesus, we're going to come to the Lord's table in, in just a, a moment. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.